Okay. Okay. We're ready to go? Yes. Good. Okay. So first of all, we want to thank everyone for coming. What are you, put, what are you going to put that picture of, Sam? What are, you, what are you doing with that video? <laughs> okay, so this is very funny. So, um, yeah, this is very weird. Okay, but anyhow, it's all good. Um, first of all, we want to thank everyone who's here. Thank you very, very much for coming and coming out in the rain and all that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. All of us. All, all, all eight of us. Anyhow, yeah. And I want to also uh, apologize. So really, thank you for coming. And I also want to apologize for last week. Um, we need a better system in how to get the word out because, like, sounds like some people knew, some people didn't know that we were off and or that we weren't doing it in person. And it was. Um, I want to thank Mr. Jaime Dana for helping make it happen. Um, in, in my house, we did it from my living room. Then we got started, and then the thing fell. <laughs> And then the heat was on loud, and forget it. It was the heat somehow because the door was open so long, so the heat went on. So it was driving me crazy. And like, you know, I needed like, in the middle of the class, I basically needed like a commercial break. I needed to split up the commercials and go and take care of it, whatever. I didn't even know if I was making any sense at all. So thank you very much. So what? A little bit. But thank you everyone for paying attention and listening last week. And thank you for coming back. And please tell your friends that we're back on for next week. And then we're off for two weeks. Uh, okay. I'm so, here. I know, but I, I, it just it gives me a chance to get a two-week break. Like, it's just a break. It's not even, you know, not going anywhere fancy. So anyhow, um, thank you very much for joining. And hopefully, without that shame, we have this week and next week. And then hopefully two weeks after that. What is that? The first Wednesday in February, I believe. We'll be back. So next week. And then the first Wednesday in February. Okay? Yep. Clear? Good. Today's class is dedicated. First of all, the Lunar Shemat and loving memory of Yosef. I'm Tarazi, Yosef Ben Linda. This is his first. His first yard site is on the ninth day of Shabbat, which is um, next week. And this was a man by his wife and his children who had really loved his family, he was always there to help other people, very friendly person to every single person, always nice, but really always spent a tremendous amount of time and love with his family. And it's also dedicated in memory of um, Isidore Earl Falak, Allah Shalom, Ezra Ben Sarah. This is his 22nd yard site, wow, it's a long time, and it's dedicated by his family, by Frida and Norman Shabbat and their family and their children. And so. Uh, Frida Norman Shabbat are a family that we've been very close to over the last seven or eight years and a big part of our organization which is Kesher is is is, is dedicated in memory of, of their family of their son and we've really enjoyed a very close relationship and done tremendous tremendously productive things in Ezra in Ezra's memory so here we are 22 years later the memory of your dad and I hope is that Hashem that our Torah today is an elevation for his neshama and all the people that are here, and hopefully all the people that are watching over here, Bezat Hashem, all their Torah, Hashem should give you and your family strength and biracha and success from your children. And hopefully, inshallah, you only see great things from many, many grandchildren and great-grandchildren that follow on a beautiful path of Torah and Mitzvot. And hopefully we'll be able to continue to produce a tremendous amount in memory of Ezra. So thank you. So, last week we touched on the subject. This week we're going to do more than touch on the subject. So this past Friday night, I'm sitting at my Friday night table, and a lot of my kids are there, and <coughs> married and whatever, and I'm talking a little bit about the story that happened a few over the last few months that's now become all over the religious Jewish world. Um, Maybe you know what I'm talking about at this point, you should know what I'm talking about, a person who wrote many books, who there are allegations of doing horrible things. And I'm talking about it and trying to make a few points, and my kids are looking at me, like staring at me, with the Lashon Hara stare. You know the Lashon Hara stare? They look at you like, why are you speaking Lashon Hara? They don't want to be disrespectful and say anything, but at the same time, 
you're giving that look. And so everyone's quiet. So the whole rambunctious family, all of a sudden, everyone's quiet. And they're all looking at me as if, like, I became some evil person or some doing, you know. And, and you know, when the, how, you know how you know it's a lashon haras there, when in the middle of the conversation, all of a sudden, someone changes the subject and everyone starts talking again. So basically, that's what, what happened. And the truth is, I got annoyed. I got annoyed because I think their take and their mentality is in many places in the from religious Jewish world, and I think it's a mistake. And I think from a story like this, there are a lot of lessons that need to be learned, and they need to be learned, and they don't need to be ignored, and they don't need to be told that it's lashon hara, so you can't say anything. And so what we're going to try to do is address this the most important lesson that needs to be taken away from this story, we're going to try and address today. And of course, we're going to talk about it as Hashem and hopefully with appropriate terminologies and so on, a lot of different people that listen with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different ages. But at the same time, the lessons that need to be learned need to be very clear. So, part of what sparked this idea is a thought I saw about this week's parasha. This week we're in Parashat Bo, and in the, para, in the Torah in general, there are a lot of words that are synonyms. That means that they basically have the same meaning. Like Sason and Simcha. They both mean happiness. Or Mechila and Silicha, they both mean forgiveness. Or Chet and Avon, they both mean sin. But the reality is that there are many great commentaries, like the Gra, like the Malbim and others, that spend a lot of time to find the nuanced differences between those two terms and often find beauty in many pisukim because they can identify the difference. There's a stark difference between sason and simcha. They're both happiness, but they're very different expressions of that happiness. There's a difference between mechila and silicha. They're both forgiveness, but they're very different expressions and understandings of that concept. And chet and avon are different also as well. And again, there's many more examples. But I'm going to give you one that's in our parasha. Again, our parasha is Bo, which last week we had seven plagues. Dan, Akinim, Arov, Dever, Shachin, and Barad. It ended with the hell. And our parasha begins with the last three. Arveh, the locust, and then Choshech, darkness, and Makah, Pechorot. These are the two words that I want to zone in on. One is the word Nish'ar. And the other one is the word notar. They both mean, I don't know what they both mean. They both mean exactly, left over. They both mean remaining. But there is a big difference, says the Malbim in our parasha, between the word nish'ar and notar, and we want to identify that difference. And then, hopefully, if you give us a minute or two, you'll see our point in a very clear way. It says about the locust, they're going to eat at yeter apeleta hanishedet lachem and habarad. They're going to eat all of the grain and all of the grass or trees that are left over from the barad from the hail. The hail destroyed the crops. They're going to re- leave everything. They're going to consume everything that is nishar, nishedet, which is clearly the word nishar, which means left over. After the plague of the Arbe is over, the Pasuk says that nothing was left. There was no leftover of any trees or any grass in the whole land of Egypt. But it changes the word. It's before the plague, it says anything that was Nish'ar. And now it says after the plague, there was nothing, nothing, any, there was nothing that was Notar. So he went from Nish'ar to Notar. What's the difference? Again, two words that just mean every time I've ever read it, until I saw this Malbim, left over, left over, left over, left over. He has such a clear, dramatic difference that once you see it, you'll never see the two words the same again. There are times when you leave something. Purposely leave something. That means if right now you left your house behind today, you left your house there, it's remaining there. You still value it, appreciate it, plan to go back to it. It's a very valuable thing. You may have even left a little baby at home today. 
You left that baby, you value him, you love him, you cherish him, he's the most important thing in the world. You left the house, and you left the baby there, but the baby is very valuable. Good. Now let's say, you're in this room and you're drinking a bottle of water, and you just leave the bottle of water and you leave. When you leave that bottle, that empty plastic bottle on the floor, you're leaving it behind like it's nothing. Nish'ar is when you leave something there with value and importance, purposely left there because of its value and its importance. Notar is basically randomly not paying attention, leaving something there because it has no value and it's not important. Nish'ar is purposely and important. Notar is ignoring it and not important. You see, the words are completely different things. Completely different things. So here's what he says about our parasha, and then you'll see our point. He says, when God brought the plague of Barad, when Hashem brought the plague of Barad, and the hail falls down on the, on the grains and on the properties and destroys everything. The pasuk says that the barley was destroyed. The wheat was not destroyed. Because they are afilot. The simple meaning of afilot means that they were like flexible and young. And because they're flexible, the, the hail hits it and it just bends. It doesn't crack. But Rashi says something totally different. Ki afilot henna means that they were, it was a pele. It was practically a miracle. It was amazing that Hashem made that remain. That means part of, according to Rashi, part of the miracle of the barat of the hell was that some crops got destroyed and some crops were left over purposely for the next plague. They were nishar on purpose. Because Hashem says, I want some of it to be destroyed, and I want some of it purposely. I know what I'm doing. I want the wheat to remain. It was nish'ar. After the arbek comes, after the locust comes, the place was totally wiped out. And that's why the Pasuk now says, Velo notar, nothing's left. Like, nothing important, nothing unimportant, nothing is left. So after the barad, Hashem left something there on purpose, but after the locust, Hashem said, now the country is completely wiped out of any produce, of anything growing, any trees, any grass, anything at all. The point of why I'm bringing up this one is not because of barad or arbeh. The point is because of these two words, nish'ad and nota. At times in life, like I told you, when you leave a baby home, you nish'ar, you leave something there purposely. Maybe you have a house and deal. It's nish'ar and deal. You value it, you cherish it, you check it, you care about it, you, you fix it. It's nish'ar there. And then there are things that are notar, that are left on the side that no one pays attention to. And this is my point, that there are many people that are notar. There are many people in our society that are left on the side and we ignore them. Well, basically, ostensibly, we ignore them. The point of today's class is to talk about a word that we don't talk about enough. The word is victims. There is a concept in the world of a victim. We don't talk about victims that much. We don't like the idea that much, and I'll tell you why soon. But there is a concept in the world of a victim. That means someone who was put in a circumstance or born with a challenge that they didn't ask for. And they are a victim of that circumstance. The sad reality of the way we often handle stories like this one about the author of that book is that we often are so consumed with the predator. We're so consumed with the gossip part of it and not consumed enough with the victim part. I'll tell you what I mean. Everyone here remembers 9-11. No one here is a kid. Everyone here remembers 9-11. If you remember 9-11, then you remember vividly. You remember that day. You remember that night. I'm a person who doesn't have a TV, doesn't own a TV. Barely ever in my life watched the TV. But on that night, it was like a mitzvah to find one. And I remember we were preoccupied. There were no commercials. We were consumed with it that day. And there were two topics of 9-11. One was the terrorists. Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, 
Iraq and whatever, Iran, whatever was behind all that stuff. It was all about half the story was the terrorists and the other half of the story was the victims. And seeing the images of families near the Twin Towers and people's faces on poles and people waiting and people praying and candles and crying and, and hearing the different stories and hearing the people that were known and saved, not saved, and people that were stuck and not stuck, and people on the, the fire department and the policeman and the people on uh, J.P. Morgan. We heard all half the story, half of our time was focused on the terrorists and half the time was focused on the victims. The problem that we often do when a story happens that that's horrific like this, is that, is it true, is it not true, it's a bad guy, very bad guy, read the books, don't read the books, bad guy, very bad guy, and we ignore the fact that there are real victims, and victims need attention, victims need focus, victims need love, victims need a helping hand. There are victims in our society, and I don't just mean from this story, even though it seems like there's almost two dozen victims from this story. There are victims, people that need society to care. And the truth is, I don't want to take credit for being inspired to talk about this. There, I, someone sent me two articles, one from a man named Svi Gluck, who's the head of an organization called Amudim, that basically helps victims. And another one is from a rabbi from Passaic, his name Rabbi Eisenman. And both of them wrote articles about this idea. The rest of the class, I mean, all the content from this class is not from there, but the idea of talking about it is from there. We need, as a nation, to care about victims. And we don't care enough. We don't talk about it enough. So much so that three days after the author of the book committed suicide, a victim committed suicide. And that's because they didn't feel like we cared because everyone's busy making the stairs that my kid, Lashon Hara, Dan Zehut, and all those kind of ideas. And you're forgetting the fact that there are people and therefore families that are in intense, acute pain. And understanding how to address that is critical. So our first point here today is that when things happen in, in, in this Jewish community, whether it's in our community itself, God forbid, or it's in the extended Jewish community, and this is not the first story we've ever heard like this. I hope it's the last, but it's definitely not the first. When you hear stories like that, our first response has to be, hello, victim, whoever you are, I don't know your names. We are with you. We value you. We are important. We're holding your hand. If there's any way we could ever possibly help you, we want to help you. And just like you want to crack open the head of your predator, we want to do it too. We are 100% with you. I don't know if I know allegations or not. I don't know what the truth is. But I know when there's victims, we're obligated and responsible to care about the victims. And here's why I think we're not so good at it. Because we really don't know, as a religious Jewish community, I don't think we know how to handle this topic at all. What I mean to say is this, is that if you bring up someone who stole from somebody else, I could tell you half of a Masech and a Gemara that talks about steal. If someone damages your property, you could go, whole Masech and Babakama all talks about damages. Any boy who's learned Gemara at all in a yeshiva coffee room knows the basics of that topic. You talk about someone's transgressing Shabbat, any person who has some level of learning knows the details and knows the concepts and is pretty well versed in it. And the same thing in regards to any other topic from Shabbat, from Apikorsut, from adultery, God, from big sins, small sins. We know. And we know the basics. Yet with a topic like this, we don't even know what to do. What do I do? What do I say? What do they do? Do we know what bad thing would do? Do we have any idea what you do? Does anybody have any idea what you do? Here's what we know. We know there's something called Chayamita, um, but Chayamita, as far as we know, is only when there is back in the day, 2,000 years ago, in real bad things, in the Beit HaMikdash time, and you had two witnesses that are objective and unbiased, and two witnesses. Without that, no one could be Chayamita. And sometimes you even need a warning. We know Lashon Hara, and we know Dan Lekav Zechut. So what automatically happens is a story like this all of a sudden it breaks and everyone says, there's no two witnesses, so we can't make them Hayamita today, and it's Lashonara, and it's Dan Lekamsechus, so therefore, you get the stares that my kid gave me, God, no, you shouldn't be looking at me like I shouldn't be talking about it, like it's a sin to talk about it, it's like a sin to bring up. So let's make some things clear. 
Here is the Chafetz Chaim's book on Lashon Hara. Good? This is the authority of Lashon Hara in the world today. The Chafetz Chaim. Okay? Written about 100 years ago, maybe a little more. And here's what he writes. He is very meticulous, very detailed, and very strict on the laws of Lashon Hara, like we all should be. Okay? He says, but all these laws that we wrote, it's in Klal Dalit Halacha Zayin, all the laws that we wrote, it's about a normal person who cares and regrets their sins. But if you know someone's way, that he doesn't fear Hashem, and he's constantly doing something that is wrong, or he doesn't care about one sin that is known, and everyone knows that this is an egregious sin. And he did it on purpose, repeatedly. In Ken, if so, you know this person is someone that does his own way and doesn't really care about what Hashem says. Mutar It's allowed to embarrass him. And to talk about his evil ways. Whether ben bifanav, ben bifanav. In front of him and not in front of him. And if he does something that you're not sure whether you should judge it lekav zechut or letzad chova, you have to judge him letzad chova. You have to judge him unfavorably. If you see someone who constantly does a sin that's an egregious sin that people know is a sin, and he does it repeatedly again and again, and he does it on purpose, then you're allowed to embarrass him, talk about him. And when you're not sure if he did it or not, you have to judge him that he committed the sin. Since he's netchazek gamur because he's proven to be an evil person. Because the Torah says you can't talk about you can't embarrass a person of someone who is, follows our ways. But someone who does not follow our ways, you're allowed to embarrass him, speak about his evil ways, and to talk, allow people to know about his disgusting ways with the shpoch booz alav, and pour embarrassment on him. Are we clear? Mm-hmm. Good. So that's the laws of Lashon Hara. The laws of Lashon Hara says that when there's a person who's an evil person, the world needs to know we don't support evil people. The world needs to know that evil is evil, and we know what evil is, and we're not one of those people who puts our head in the sand and says, see no evil, hear no evil, there's no such thing as evil. Yes, there is such a thing as evil, and there are people that are evil, and I'm not saying every person who commits a sin accidentally or doesn't really know, is not so knowledgeable, I'm not saying go around and talk about every person that commits a little sin, but I'm saying when someone is committing an egregious sin again and again and again, it's almost a mitzvah to embarrass that person so that it's clear that we don't associate with that kind of thing with Hashem. So when we're scared to say anything, or when we hide from saying anything, or when we just say, I'd rather not say a word and let anything know, and I'm not sure, keep the books, don't keep the books, and that becomes the mindset, then you're off, and you're wrong. Because A, you're misbased the laws of Lashon Hara, and B, you're hurting the victims. Because if anyone has ever felt like someone hurt them in any way, God forbid, not in this way, but if someone hurt you in any way, you want your family to be upset just like you're upset. If you're mad at someone, you want your family to also care. If someone hurt your business, let's say, let's go something that's not, God forbid, as bad as this. Someone hurts your business, you're annoyed about it. And you know how annoyed you are about it? You want all your friends and all anyone who's with you to also feel the same annoyed. Whether that's right or wrong is not my point today. But when someone is, feels like a part of the Jewish family and they were taken advantage of and abused and God forbid in horrific ways, they want to know that their family is behind them. And they want to know that we, the Jewish family, cares enough and cares enough to be upset about it. Clear enough or not? Good. The Gimpasuk now says, now about how about being down the kapsa You have to judge everybody favorably. So I already read to you what the Chabez Chaim says, but I want to show you something in the Pasuk, and I'm going to try to say this as appropriately as possible. In the book of Devarim, Parashaki Tetzer, the Torah talks about um, inappropriate relationships. And in there, the Pasuk talks about if the sin happened in the city, or if the sin happened in the sadeh, in the field. What's the difference if it happened in the city or in the field? So if it happened in the city, 
and we didn't hear anybody yell or scream or whatever. We assumed that both parties were agreed, and therefore both of them are considered to having committed the sin, the man and the woman. But if it's basadev, it's in the field, so there's no houses around, so no one can hear. In, if it's in the field, then the man gets killed, but the girl does not. Ki because we found her in the field. This married woman screamed, and nobody helped her. She screamed, and nobody helped her. Now, one second. I told you before, the story happened in the field. So if it happened in the field, the whole point of why we're acquitting her is because we don't know what she did. So what do you mean she screamed? Says the Svorno on this Pasuk, in Perechavet, Pasuk Havzayin in Devarim, says the Svorno, if, we, if it happened in the field, she's a victim, Danin Otalekavzechut. We judge her favorably. We assume she screamed. We don't know that she screamed. It was in the field. We weren't there. We assume that she screamed. Because she's the victim, we assume that she cried out. Which means that when we have a story that's a horrific story, we're obligated to judge the perpetrator, Lakab Kova, when there's enough evidence and it's clear enough and there was testimony in bad deeds, we're obligated to judge them unfavorably and we're responsible to judge the victims favorably. Dan we judge her favorably. So when it comes to saying, oh, I have to judge people favorably, when there's testimony, incredible bad things in Israel, again and again and again, repeated testimony from credible people, whether it's official, official edim or not official edim, doesn't matter. When there's enough evidence that things like this happen, then they, the, the victim needs to know that we're judging you favorably. And we're judging you that we're assuming you screamed and you're crying and you're in pain and we care about your pain. And I want to make this point and how it's relevant to all of us in a minute. But I want to get to one more thing in regards to that same pasuk in dividing the pasuk before. When the pasuk looks at how you judge the man, he's chayab mitah because he did, he committed the sin of adultery, but the woman is not chayab mitah. This is how the pasuk says it. Because again, because we assume she screamed. Just like a man stands up against his friend and murders him, this is the same thing. That means the Torah is saying in clear language. Now the Gemara in Sanhedrin has a different derasha that you learn from it. But the clear words of the Torah is this. Is that just like a man with a gun who shoots someone else, there's an aggressor and there's a victim and the person's a victim of murder. This man in the field who did, took advantage of a woman the way he shouldn't, that she was screaming, that person, he is like a rotseah. He's like a murderer because he murdered that person. I don't think we know enough the pain of what someone happens to a person's life when they, when they were abused. I don't know if we understand the level of pain and how distorted their brain becomes. And there are many people that years after it happened, decades after it happened, their life is still troubled because they were a victim of murder. And what makes it worse is that when someone's a victim of actual murder, it's very clear. Murderer victim. Everybody knows. But when these kind of stories, not everybody knows. And the world often in these situations sees the perpetrator, maybe before the world knows, as a great person or a good person or a wonderful person. And so every time the victim sees someone shaking the perpetrator's hand or smiling the perpetrator or being friendly to the perpetrator or talking about it or reading the book, it becomes another knife in their stomach. So the Torah compares it to murder, not me. What's our point? Our point, and again, to end with this in regards to the books, um, last week, right before I got COVID, on, on Sunday, I was in Chicago because they had a Aguda convention, Aguda Midwest convention in Chicago. On Friday night, this is before the man committed suicide, on Friday night, they had questions and answers with the big rabbis. I wasn't there. I was in Brooklyn for Shabbat, and I flew there Saturday night. On Friday night, they had questions and answers, and it's apparently a very popular thing. There's maybe, I don't know, 500, 700 people that were in the room, and they asked questions and answers. And one of the questions that they asked 
to Rabbi Elia Budni. I don't know if you heard of Rabbi Elia Budni. He's one of the biggest rabbis in America today. He's actually here out of the Mir Yeshiva. He's a very known speaker, an older rabbi, and very, very accomplished, and very, very much sought after for advice and guidance and leadership. Someone raised a hand, and they said, are we allowed to have those books in our house? And the person wasn't exactly clear, because they specifically made it unclear, but everyone knew what was going on, and he basically said this, we don't know for sure that it happened, but if it for sure happened, we definitely have to get rid of the books. So if it's a safek, if it happened, we also have to get rid of the books. If we're not sure, we also have to get rid of the books. Because at the end of the day, I don't know anything about the author of Curious George or Dr. Seuss either. But when you know something about the author and the author's name on the book represents a horrific sin, then we need to know to take the books off the shelf. What is my point and what does it have to do with us in our regular life? The answer is victims. That there are victims. And there are victims in society and so often because we're so self-conscious about so many of these ideas, like I just said, Dan le and Lashon Hara, and I don't really know, and it wasn't really proven, and because of that, and if you want to therefore not be sure how to handle the perpetrator, fine, you don't always know. But because of that, we sometimes don't know how to care about the victims. And I don't mean just victims of this story. I mean victims of every story. Victims of marital abuse. Victims of a, of a, of a, a you know, like I said, just physical abuse. Victims of bullying in school. Things like that that are even much smaller than this. That don't belong even in the same category as this. But there are people that circumstance victimizes them. And when that happens, our sensitivity needs to be much stronger than it is. And instead of being so preoccupied with the gossip or whether I'm allowed to gossip or not allowed to gossip, you're missing the point. The point is here and your conversation is all over here. You have to understand how these people need to be cared for. So I want to give you a few examples that are very practical, that have nothing to do with the story, and God forbid, nothing to do with this level of abuse in any way at all. But I want to talk to what I mean by sensitivity. So a few weeks ago, I gave a speech here about respect. And the speech was about respect and spoke about how you have to treat someone the right way because very often I don't judge myself the way I think I am and I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Remember that? When you said it was confusing then, it's still confusing now. I am who I think you think I am. Good. And then I ended the speech by saying, but of course the best way to be is for you yourself is not to care about these things. And don't judge yourself by how you think someone else views you. You have to be above that. And now is the Berachah of Ephraim and Hashem that they seem to both not care, even though the hands were switched. And the older brother got the left hand. He didn't care, and he was good with it. And that was the blessing, that everyone should be above that. Right? Remember the class? Good. So often, on Fridays, I make a speech at Magna David High School, and I'll speak about, similar to what we spoke about on Wednesday, but the speech window is 15 minutes and not this whole long time that we have here. So I made a speech and I kept telling everybody you have to treat your friends with respect, you have to treat them with respect, you have to be careful how you respond to a text message and answer a phone call and a smile, everything you have to be careful about because, and I said that whole line, you think, I think, I think, you think, whatever, okay? I said the whole line again and again. And that's how I ended the speech. You have to really be careful about how you treat a friend because I am not who I think I am, I am not who you think I am, I am who I think you think I am. A teacher comes into my office, and I appreciate this very much, right after the speech, and I gave the speech over Zoom. That's how we do it this year, over Zoom to all the classrooms in the building. So I'm really just looking at maybe 10 kids, and the rest of the building is hearing it in their classrooms over Zoom. One of the teachers comes down, and she says to me, she's a female teacher, she says to me, I usually love your speeches, I listen to it, and you started with this whole thing, you think, I think, whatever, and I'm like, there's no way he said that. And he says, she says, I said to, my, to the girls in the room, don't worry, he's obviously going to land and make the point at the end. She says, but you never made the point. You basically told all of these students that they should judge themselves by how they think other people judge them. You realize how insecure you made them feel? You basically told them that they should judge themselves how they think other people judge them. And I said, you know what? Wow, I totally didn't intend to do it. Because I never got a chance to finish the speech and say you shouldn't care about that. I never got to that point. I just said you have to respect people. And my point was respect people because they care about how people view them. But I didn't realize that I was telling a whole school of kids that you should care about how people view you because that's how, that, that's how you should view yourself, how other people view you, or how you think other people view you. So right away, I wasn't sure if she was right. So I went downstairs to the cafeteria. There were three girls in the cafeteria. I said, girls, what did you get out of the speech? 
So one answer, no, it's great. The other one said, I'll tell you the truth. I basically got out of it that I should view myself how other people view me. I was like, whoa, that's so not what I intended. But you know what? I have a responsibility to be careful because there are a lot of people who are insecure. And there are a lot of people who don't get the right respect and because of that, view themselves as lesser people. What I did is during the week, you know, the boys, the boys here, you know, the boys, they couldn't care less. They liked the speech, they got the message, game over. But the girls cared. So during the week, I went to the girls' shacharit, we had two shacharits, and I went to the girls and I gave a whole five-minute speech about how valued, how they should value themselves and the whole thing, and I appreciate it very much. We have that responsibility to be that kind of sensitive. I'll give you another example that happened in school. I was talking to a group of girls the day before the fast day. And I said, guys, we're fasting tomorrow. Everyone said, yeah, yeah, of course we're fasting tomorrow. And then one girl said, no, I'm not fasting. So my reflex was going to be, what do you mean not fasting? The whole fast is less than 11 hours. It's from 6 o'clock to earlier than 5 o'clock. It's so easy. I'm about to say it. And then I realized, one second. She might have a reason she's not fasting. And I suddenly realized that it's very likely that she has an eating disorder. And she doesn't need to hear me tell her that she should fast. She has to not fast. She's supposed to eat. It's a mitzvah for her to eat. If she would fast, it would be a sin for her to fast. But if I would have, if she would have got some kind of like convincing from a rabbi the day before, no, you should be fast, no big deal, you could fast, you could fast, you should fast, I would have triggered something that would have been harmful. I'm obligated to know that there are people out there with these weaknesses. There are people that are victims to mental health challenges. I'm not here to judge them. I'm here to recognize that that's out there. And you know how I felt it even more? Last week, you all know I had COVID. That's why we didn't get this class in person. I had COVID, I was in my house. I'll tell you the truth. My symptoms were pretty in between. I had a little headache. I was a little weak in bed and so on. For the most part, I enjoyed the week. It was relaxing. I did some Zoom things. I did try to do this speech on Zoom on, on, on online. And I did some other Zoom classes. I learned. I read. I was in bed half the day. I was. It was pretty relaxing. You know what else it was? It was very lonely. When my kids are in school, it was very lonely. And I was like, one second, this doesn't feel great. And then I stopped and realized and said, how many people are victims of loneliness? How many people, for whatever situation they were put in, are very lonely? Maybe because they're actually lonely, because they live alone, or they, they don't have a job, or things like that that make them feel alone. Or even if they have people around them, they're mentally, mentally lonely. And I said, I, from going through it myself, all of a sudden got this sensitivity towards loneliness. And on Saturday night, I make these little videos, and I said in the speech, I said, if you know anyone else COVID, even though they don't have heavy symptoms, send them a text anyhow, because it is a little lonely to be home for five days. I'll tell you the truth, five days was not enough. I needed seven, but I left after five, but I should have left after seven. But it's a, it's a little lonely. We need to realize that we sometimes get pre so preoccupied with the gossip part of the story that we don't get down to the bottom of the story. And the bottom of the story in many cases, whether it's mental health, whether it's abuse, whether it's, like I said, bullying, whether it's a circumstance of, of some divorce or uh, some situation, kid or something like that, and I, I don't want to be as detailed and graphic, you have situations where all some people are a victim of something. And they need us to get up on the rooftop and yell and scream and cheer and root for them and be upset about how they were hurt and then root for their revival and strength. And I think, I want to give you one more example about this same rebellion, Brittany. So in the summer, we were, um, there was a meeting, there's this new organization called Simcha. So this organization called Simcha is about mental health and they're really working with this other organization in the community also do it, but Simcha is being very focused and hopes to, to do a lot for this mental health. And like I said, SBH also does, I think, a very nice job. There's other organizations that do a nice job as well. But in the summer, I don't want to make sure that I'm picking any sides, but anyhow, in the summer, there was an event for rabbis by this organization of Simcha, where they're going to talk about mental health and the challenges of mental health. And they had a lot of young rabbis in the room, maybe 40 or 50 of them, from schools and shuls. And they had a few gidolim there. And after the whole presentation, they had questions. One of the young rabbis gets up, and he has a question. What's his question? He says, here's my question. 
My question is this, that years ago, Rabbi Miller once said that a lot of these diagnoses are really just like excuses. And really, there's people that they just have a Yetzir Hara, and they're not being strong over the Yetzir Hara, and the reason why they have these things, whatever ones you want to call them, anxiety, this and that, is really because they should just be fighting the Yetzir Hara better, and that's the problem. And he asked the question to Elia Budni, who's sitting in the front of the room. I wish I had a video to show you of Elia Budni's reaction. He almost jumped out of his chair to cut the man's head off. He says, are you crazy? He says, Rabbi Victor Miller is the greatest rabbi. He lived in a different time. I don't know the story of that time. Maybe they knew some information. Maybe they didn't have all the information. I'm quoting him. This is not my quote. I wouldn't say those words. He said, maybe they had the information. Maybe they didn't have the information. But for you to say about someone who has anxiety or depression or eating disorder or things like that, that it's just a yetzer hara, they should work on it? Are you crazy? He was screaming for five minutes. Are you, you, are you crazy? This is the reason why people have these problems. And this is the reason why there's a stigma. Because of people like you that say, oh, it's a yetzer hara, they should fight the yetzer hara. No, 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 no. People have clinical issues and they need help with the issues and they need to be supported with the issues. Not told it's the yetzer hara and have more emunah. That's the wrong answer. And the truth is, I think the reason why we're not good with victimhood is this. The reason why we're not good with victimhood is because the entire Jewish nation could wave the flag of victimhood. We've been victims for thousands of years. And what we're proud of is the fact that we overcome those challenges. So all we talk about in every class and every speech and every book we read is about overcoming challenges, having emunah and fighting the Yitzhahara and winning and succeeding. And yes, you were thrown a challenge, but you could beat that challenge. Every message is that way. So when every message is overcome the challenge, we look at a victim and we just say, overcome the challenge. But the reality is, no, no, no. That message is for you, overcome the challenge. But I want to tell you something interesting to make our point. What is the greatest example of how we overcome our challenge? The greatest example of it is Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That we were in Egypt, we were in bondage, we were in slavery, we were suffering, and we became a free, great, chosen nation. Yitzhak Mitzrayim is the greatest example of our nation overcoming challenge. And the Torah mentions Yitzhak Mitzrayim leaving Egypt all the time to remember that great time and that great moment. But the Torah also mentions Yitzhak Mitzrayim a lot of times for something else too. It always says that if you see someone who's downtrodden, remember that you were once downtrodden in Egypt and you were once slaves in Egypt. And you know how that felt? So you should know how those victims feel too. So as much as we need to overcome our challenge, and Mitzrayim reminds us how capable we are of doing so, we also have to be able to look at someone else who couldn't overcome it and recognize that maybe they're a victim of something and maybe their circumstance is one that we have to remember their pain and not tell them, here's a great book on Emunah, this is going to help you. I don't know how much longer I'm supposed to have. I don't know if I'm taking too much time on this topic. What? Thank you. But I think the topic is very important. I want to give you one more Gemara that I recently was learning. Gemara is Maseche Sota Davyud Dalit Amud Aleph. Sota is a woman who was a, who her husband is alleging that maybe she wasn't loyal. And so she goes to the Beit HaMikdash and there's a whole process. They give her water to drink. And if she's guilty, she passes away. And if she's not guilty, she gets blessing. And she, go, and she brings a whole Korban. So there's a whole Masechet on this topic called Masechet Sotah, whole Masechet of Gemara. And in Masechet Sotah, in the beginning of the second paragraph, it says that when this girl comes to the Beit HaMikdash, she has a sacrifice that she has to bring. And there's a whole process. We put the sacrifice in her hand, and then we move it to here, and then she has to go over there, and she has to carry the sacrifice the whole time. So the Gemara says, Kol Kachlama, why are we making a duel of this? Says the Gemara, because maybe through her being like worn down by all the work you're giving her to do, maybe she'll admit to her sin and be saved of the consequences. So we put her through this whole process so that maybe she admits, and if she admits, she'll be saved from the consequences. And then the Gemara makes an incredible comment. Says the Gemara, If we do this whole process, 
to help save someone who sinned. All the more so for people who didn't sin. And I have a question. You need to tell me that. If we care about people who sin, because here we're caring about her, we're putting her through this work so that she admits, so that she's safe from the consequences. If we care about people that sin, we care about people that don't sin. Obviously, duh, what are you telling me? I think what the Gemara is telling me is this. It's a very powerful thought that sometimes we're more preoccupied with the sinner than the We're too preoccupied with this person, they're right or wrong, guilty, innocent, and we ignore the person who's for sure innocent. So the Gemara is saying, by the way, I want you to know, we do this for a person who's guilty, but we for sure do even more for a person who's innocent. It's the same message of victims. When people are innocent, they need to know that they have our support. I want to tell you, I think this is important because we all forget, so I'm going to give you another nice little story. There was a rabbi named Rebchatzka Labramsky, one of the big rabbis in London 60, 70 years ago, 50, 60 years ago. He's sitting in a shul one day, and there's a boy reading the Sefer Torah. Boy, Bar Mitzvah, boy reading the Sefer Torah. Maybe he's a little older than Bar Mitzvah. And the boy is reading the Sefer Torah, and he's making all kinds of mistakes. Now, if anyone's ever in a shul where the Sefer Torah reader is making mistakes, everyone loves to jump down. And everyone loves to correct. So, the kid's making mistake after mistake. And say one mistake was like a great, horrible mistake. And Rabbi Abramsky is sitting there on the side, silent doesn't flinch. After it's over, his students are rabbi. The kids make a million mistakes. You should have said something, you should have got up, you should have walked out, you should have corrected him. He didn't say anything. He says, here's what I know. I know that the Torah is supposed to be read correctly. I know. And I shouldn't hear the Torah if it's read incorrectly. That I do know. But here's what else I know. I know that someone who embarrasses someone in public, has no portion of haba. So I started thinking about the dozens of Sifarim I wrote, all the Torah I spread, all the good I did in my whole life potentially could be lost because I correct this one kid and embarrass him in public. So I chose to hear the Torah wrong so as not to create embarrassment. Here's a rabbi sensitive. This kid is making mistakes. But the rabbi says to himself, in this circumstance, if I start correcting him, this kid's going to feel like a victim. He's going to be, he's all of a sudden, like the whole shul is, his walls are caving down on him. I'd rather not say a word and hear the Torah the wrong way than embarrass someone for real. We have a lot of power. We have a lot of power to make to determine whether someone feels like valuable or leftovers. We have a lot of power to make someone feel important and meaningful and someone that has that could contribute or to make someone feel like they don't really matter and more than anything else i hope we don't come that con that much contact with people that are real victims like some of the ones we've spoken about today but semi-victims or little victims we're all in contact with all the time and our sensitivity to them needs to be even stronger can i tell you one last thought tell you one last thought I want to show you how much power we have. When you go back to the book of Bereshit, Yaakov Avinu talks about his son, Benjamin. And he says, I care very much about this boy. Be careful when you take him down to Egypt. Ki achiv met, because his brother, the brother passed away, because he thinks Yosef is dead. Vehu levado nishar. He is the only one left from his mother, is the only one left behind. Yaakov Avinu uses which word? Nish'ar, which means purposely here and valuable to me. Yehuda then goes and then they bring, they bring Benjamin down to Egypt. The king of Egypt, who they don't know is Yosef, falsely accuses them and wants to take Benjamin and let all the brothers go. Yehuda gets up and he's furious and he's upset. And he says these words. He says, you understand that my brother died by Yivater Hu And he is the only one who's left to his mother. What's the word he uses? Vayivater, notar, which means left and not valuable. Yaakov said nishar, 
He said no tag. Why the switch? The answer is Yaakov is trying to tell his sons, this boy is very, very important to me. Yehuda is trying to say, King of Egypt, you don't need this kid. He's leftovers. He's not valuable. He's not important. He's not tired. He's just left. He's, he's like a plastic, empty plastic bottle that you don't even recognize. You don't want this guy with you. He's not important. What you see from these pesukim is simply how I can word something. I can make someone go from feeling important to feeling inconsequential. I can make someone feel like they're relevant or feel like the Jewish nation doesn't care. So more than anything else, we need to know the power that we hold. That yes, there are things that we shouldn't get involved in. There are stories that we don't know enough about. There are. But then there are times when people are hurt. And when people are hurt, sometimes mildly so, sometimes a little more significantly so, and sometimes dramatically life-alteringly so. And when people are hurt, they need to know that every one of us as individuals, and Am Yisrael as a people, or our community as a group, we care. And we're here for you. And we stand with you. And we don't protect people who do the wrong thing to you. Because we know what murder looks like. And we know when it's Lashonara and when it's not. And we know when we're supposed to judge favorably and when we're not. And we know when something is supposed to feel nishad, valuable and important. And when something's supposed to feel notad, that we leave it aside. We know the difference. And so to every person who in our community or outside of our community, that feels in some way that something happened to them in their life that they're struggling with. And someone next to them tells them, well, read this book on Emunah, listen to Rabbi Haber's class and give you some chizuk, make sure that you do something like that or work on yourself. To every one of those people, we want to say, we know the pain you're going through. We may not understand it fully, but we identify it and care about it. And as a nation, more than anything, we're merciful. And as a nation, more than anything, more than the gossip and more than the talk and more than the, the haki balash, more than anything else, when a victim is in pain, we hold your hand. Thank you. We'll see you next week, Bazat Hashem, hopefully in person. I don't think you get COVID two weeks in a row. So hopefully we'll see you next week. Thank you.